This is Season 2 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not-yet-fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 2.22, Signed in Blood, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, I'm a lifelong Gundam fan, and I said I was only going to do short research pieces this week because I enjoy lying to myself. And I'm Nina, new to Zeta, and I love the Gabsley's weird little bug face and shiny claws. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 259 patrons. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest patrons, Michael G, Eileen M, Mike P, and Mr. Charlie. Or Charlie? I don't know how they want me to say that. <laughs> Patrons, depending on level, get a shout-out on the podcast, entry in all of our seasonal giveaways, recognition on our website, access to a patron Discord, bonus content, behind-the-scenes exclusives, and physical Mobile Suit Breakdown merch, like art prints, pins, and t-shirts. Find out more at GundamPodcast.com slash Patreon. And we still want your questions and your Gundam opinions for our upcoming Q&A and forum episodes. Those will be released on November 16th and November 23rd, respectively, but we do need your questions and takes in advance. And we have gotten so many good ones already that we're thinking about closing the submissions early, so if you have good ideas, send them in as soon as possible. But now, back to episode 2.22. This week, we discuss Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam episode 21, The Sign of Zeta, or Zeta no Kodo. We also research and discuss the Gabflay, Blood Oaths, and some text Easter eggs. But first, let's tune in to TNN for a reminder of what happened last week. <laughs> Send those space noids back where they came from. That's all for me tonight, but now it's time for Lieutenant Nina's Book Club. I hope you all enjoyed last week's recommendation, the deeply touching and intimate memoir, I, Blutark. I certainly did. Don't forget to log on to the TNN page on my Earth to share your thoughts with other loyal book lovers. This week, I'm recommending a book I read recently that I absolutely love, it's a new work by famed neuroscientist, child psychologist, and self-help author Dr. Namikar Cornell, whose previous books include Lure In, Women, Work, and How to Take Advantage When Men Underestimate You, and Helicopter Mothering, Foolproof Methods to Track Down Your Runaway Teen. But her newest book, already rocketing to the top of the New York Tomes bestseller list, is The Life-Changing Magic of Doing As You're Told. Tips, tricks, and mantras for motivating a stubborn child, and it has already revolutionized the way I deal with the members of our Teen Titans internship program. 
Let me read you one of my favorite passages from Chapter Four, The Next Level. My whole outlook on child rearing changed when I realized that while children are sweet, biddable creatures who will do anything to please you or make the electric shocks stop, teenagers are ungrateful, worthless little monsters who will demand and demand from you but won't do a single thing you ask, even if their life or something more important like your career is on the line. As hard as this may be to read, some teens will even point guns at their parents. This revelation was disheartening at first, but I soon came to understand that this is merely their nature. Like a wild animal, the indolent teen must be tempted, goaded, chastised, and when all else fails, flattered. But each little monster is different, and properly motivating any teen requires an intimate understanding of what makes them tick. This leads me to the heart of the Namikar Cornell method. Step one: identify something your child or subject possesses that sparks joy in their lives. For younger children, this might be a cherished stuffed animal or toy mobile suit. For teens, you might need to think outside the box. It could be a special object, but it could also be a beloved person or something more personal, like a cherished skill, a firmly held conviction or sense of purpose, or even their memories. Step two: use whatever means necessary to steal the thing that sparks joy from the child. Finally, step three: enjoy your newfound leverage. Throughout the rest of this book, I will provide you with strategies for implementing my method and other invaluable techniques like corporal punishment, negative reinforcement, and hypnosis. But the key to motivating any teen is just that simple: take something important away from them, then offer to give it back when they behave. It's natural to feel some doubt during this process. Natural, but wrong. Just remind yourself that you have no choice. You are doing important work for the good of all humanity, while the subject is not even a human—not really. Not the way you are. Repeat that to yourself a few times, and I guarantee you'll feel better about whatever you're about to do. Wow, that sounds great. I don't read books anymore because of the feelings they make me feel, but I'll definitely be experimenting with this new Namikor method with all of my subordinates. And now the recap for Sign of Zeta. The Titans and Federation have set a new plan in motion, Operation Apollo, to capture the near side of the moon. Many ships are taking part, including the ship commanded by the mysterious, lavender-haired man from Jupiter. We finally learn his name. He is Paptimus Suroko, and recently pledged his loyalty to Titan's leader Jamitov Hymem. Ayug forces continue to patrol, knowing the Titans are nearby, but not yet certain where they are headed or what they are planning. On the bridge. Camille comes back from patrol to report to Bright, but winds up arguing with Torres, a member of the bridge crew. He accuses Torres of being a nag and a pest, and Torres retorts that Camille is homesick and out of it, and has been acting as if he's some big hero after returning from Earth. The fight quickly turns physical as they punch and tackle each other, and another crew member goes to help Torres gang up on Camille. Emma writes it off as young guys blowing off steam, but Bright is appalled that they would start a fight on the bridge, pulling them apart. Punching each of them in turn and sending them to cool their heels in the disciplinary room. As he's leaving the bridge, Emma stops Camille. She can tell he's lonely and thinks he must have fallen in love back on Earth. Camille acts as if he has no idea what she means, and she leaves him with a final piece of advice: he can't keep taking his feelings out on the people around him. Preparing for their next offensive, the Titans test a new mobile suit, the Gabslay. 
Jared, now transferred to Sirocco's ship, and another pilot, Moar, take the two Gabsley units out into space. They are incredibly powerful, fast, with mega-particle cannons similar to those on ships, and the ability to transform between a mobile armor form and a humanoid form. Back on the ship, Paptimus describes the Titan's true purpose to Moar and Jared, to free those held by Earth's gravity. Isn't that the same as Ayug? Moar asks. But Sirocco sees Ayug and the space noids living in Earth's orbit as still held by the Earth sphere. According to Sirocco, Hymum's ultimate plan is to keep the Earth at war long enough to ruin its economy and starve its populace, leaving the Earth entirely unpopulated by humans. Sitting bored in the disciplinary room, Torres and Saegusa apologize to Camille. He thinks they're just sucking up in the hope that he brought bootleg videos back from Hong Kong. But their banter is interrupted by an alarm. A Titan's mobile suit is coming their way. Camille, Emma, and the Nemos launch and head toward the target. Only one mobile suit has been detected, but who would be foolish enough to launch just one mobile suit? Still, Camille consents that they are about to face something they have never faced before, and he warns Emma to be careful. It is Jared out in one of the Gabsley, and it quickly becomes clear that the Mark II and Rick Diaz are completely outmatched. Emma's Rick Diaz is sliced to bits, and she only just manages to eject the escape pod in time. Knowing how vulnerable she is in the middle of a battlefield, Camille hands her pod to one of the Nemos, telling them to take her back to the Argama. Bent on revenge, Jared has no interest in finishing Camille quickly. He wants to make Camille suffer. As he crushes the Mark II in the Gabsley's arms, suddenly something hits him from behind, and he releases Camille's mobile suit. Damaged and spinning, the Mark II malfunctions and the cockpit door opens, sending Camille drifting with nothing between him and the vacuum of space but his normal suit. He panics, breath shallow and fast as he wonders if he will die in space, just like his parents. But rescue is on its way. A small ship, like nothing he's ever seen before, and with cannons to rival the Gabflay, is harrying Jared and manages to destroy his mobile suit, forcing Moar to pick him up and then retreat to safety. The mystery ship pulls up close to Camille and opens its cockpit, allowing him to squeeze inside, practically in the pilot's lap. Safely inside and on their way back to the Argama, the pilot opens their visor. It's Fa! She has been training as a pilot since Camille left for Earth, and she has returned to the Argama with Apoli and the completed Zeta Gundam. We finally learn Jupiter Headband's name, Paptimus Sirocco. They really want us to know his name because in the span of about 10 minutes, it's either said or shown on screen like 15, 20 times. It's a great name and they really overpronounce it every time. Paptimus Sirocco. Who decides that signing an oath in public is not dramatic enough. He has to put a bloody fingerprint on it as well. I think you're underselling the in public part of that a little bit. He's in a giant audience chamber. Flanked by rows of soldiers in front of a dais. With, with a throne. Yep. Jemitov Hyman sitting on a throne. That's how you can tell he's a good guy. I was going to say that in perhaps one of the biggest indicators that four was in fact right and both sides are in fact basically the same but with different uniforms. We hear from Sirocco what Hymem's supposed big plan is. And it's to break humanity free from the Earth sphere. 
No more humans on Earth. Though he wants to do that by exhausting the economy through endless war so that everyone starves. Which is cool. Love that. Love endless wars that exhaust the economy. I was also amused by Sirocco's insistence that we're going to need a genius to lead humanity when this is all over. Oh, no, I don't mean me. I think it's going to be a woman. I got the very strong sense he already has someone in mind. Hmm. He knows who he thinks is going to be leading humanity, and that person is a woman. Oh, I have a very different idea, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. So Sirocco's comment here about the future leader of humanity being a genius woman feels to me kind of like mystical and tapped into this, like the future is female, uh, almost messianic kind of othering of the feminine nature, that there's something like inherently superior about women mm -hmm. as a as a type. And it makes Sirocco a very interesting kind of character, also a total creep, well, as we'll see later in the episode. So Sirocco here is positioning himself not as the future leader, but as the loyal servant, the second in command, the grand vizier, the if harbinger. you will. The harbinger. Yeah, that's good. The harbinger of this future female messiah. Mm -hmm. And he does this with Jamitov. He does the very showy, ostentatious display of loyalty. Like, here's my blood signature. I'm yours till the end. And if I ever betray you, you can kill me. But by saying, I think the future leader is going to be female, he's explicitly saying it can't possibly be me. It could be any ambitious woman. It could be you. It could be you. It could be her. And whoever it is, I'll be there as her loyal servant. Me, Sirocco. Don't you want to sign up with me so that I can make all of your ambitions come true? He cultivates a sort of mysticism around him. Hymum describes him as living like a hermit. Which is never explicitly explained, but Hermit gives us these sort of mystical vibes. The signing in blood feels very mystical, again, this like old magics kind of thing. Jared asks him if he's saying he's a new type. He doesn't answer the question. <laughs> he says, I know if I want the world to change, I need to change it. He doesn't actually address whether or not he says he's a new type. But because we know he's from Jupiter, we suspect that he is. Also because in his first appearance, both Quattro and Camille felt pressure from him, which is a pretty good indication. Mm -hmm. And so to some degree, even if he does suspect, like I think he does, who the next leader will be, his appearing to make prognostications, even though he probably already knows who he thinks it's going to be, adds to that mystical, magical aura that he has developed for himself. Mm. See, I feel like the purpose of it is to cultivate his relationships with all of these women around him. He's clearly trying to cultivate a relationship with Moar. Yes. And he has that unnamed pink-haired Titans officer who's hanging around the ship. She appears so briefly, I don't think we can speak to their relationship at all yet. Perhaps not, but there does seem to be a special relationship between the two of them. Because when Moar is leaving the bridge, she's like, who is that low-ranked officer and what is she doing here? Well, and why haven't I been introduced to her? But I think that speaks more to the moir Sirocco relationship than it does to his potential interactions with whoever pink-haired girl is. <laughs> Perhaps. Yeah, it would appear as though there is a, a bit of a rivalry between Jared and Sirocco over Moir. I don't know how to say her name. It sucks. Heel hair. <laughs> I think Moir is, is correct. Um, Moir Pharaoh. But if there is a rivalry, it's really only in their respective heads because Moar seems to have no particular interest in Sirocco or whatever he's peddling. 
Because a couple of times in this episode, he makes overtures to her, which she ignores. And then when he walks away laughing, she's like, who is that guy? What is his deal? Who does he think he is, kind of? But I don't know that we've seen any behavior from her or any indications that she has feelings for Jared either, other than sort of comradely, we are fellow pilots kind of feelings. Mm. There's the moment where... She uses the gabflay against Sirocco's um, Masala, and they're like enjoying fighting each other. And Jared seems jealous. He's like, mm, that's Sirocco. <laughs> and then later, after Jared's been injured and she's checking up on him, and Sirocco comes by, he makes a comment to her about how Jared is just a boy, basically. <laughs> and she should be with an adult. She should be with a, a man. Like him. If she were really ambitious, he's like, you know, whatever. If, if you like the young guys, if that's your thing, you know, whatever. And the English but, translation is, is, if you have a fetish for boys, that's fine. Yeah, th- that was really creepy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't put it past Sirocco to mean that either. Well, and it kind of goes to that sense of him as an almost ascetic monastic figure. In the Japanese monastic tradition, relationships between older priests and like boys, young, young initiates, mm-hmm. were standard. And while we only have a sample size of one man and one woman, really, this is kind of what I mean about Sirocco trying to develop positive relationships with women, really going out of his way to do so, to try to win their loyalty, but then also having so much friction with Jared, with men. We have no sign of him having particular friction with any other men except Jared. I don't know. His conversation with Jamaican also has some overtones. And previously, the last time we saw him, when he showed up with the masala and just managed to like... Tweak the noses of every Federation officer he was around. Yes. I think you were right when you said we don't have enough of a sample size for his relationships with women. I also don't think he's trying to build particularly positive relationships. I'm, I think he's trying to inspire loyalty, but that's not the same. He doesn't need them to like him. He wants their loyalty because he wants them to feel that their success is tied up in him. I think he wants them to like him, too. This is only about 25% a joke. I think Sirocco is trying to start a cult. I would buy that. But again, I think... The new type cult of the space mother. I don't know much about cults, but I do get a sense that inspiring devotion is not the same as inspiring liking. Inspiring awe is not the same as inspiring liking. A leader doesn't need you to like them. They need you to do what they say. (laughs) He seems entirely unfazed by the loss of one Gabflay. He doesn't mention the loss of the Gabflay at all. Nope. Which is a little surprising given that they're brand new and very powerful and Jared managed to wreck one the second time they took them out. Maybe he read Jared's file. Maybe he just expected that was going to happen. Maybe he knew that sending Jared out with two mobile suits and getting one back was a pretty good result for Jared. Jared's getting a little bit of the space madness. That's what I think. <laughs> He's so mad when Moir shows up to back him up in the fight because he wanted to fight the Mark II totally alone. And he doesn't want to just destroy it, which he could have easily done several times during the fight. He wanted to torture it to death. Which is a weird thing to say about a mobile suit. Yeah. Well, like you said, space madness. He's obsessed. And despite the fact that he does not agree with Sirocco's stated position, he doesn't seem particularly shocked when Sirocco says that this is also Hymem's position. He doesn't seem very surprised that like, oh, this organization he thought was about 
Earthnoid supremacy <laughs> is actually about ruining the Earth forever for everyone. I really wonder if that is actually Heimatov. I really wonder. If that- <laughs> <laughs> That's our new one. <laughs> <laughs> I really wonder if that is actually Heimatov's position or if that's just Sirocco covering his butt or lying to Jared and Moar to see what happens. Totally possible. There's a theory that the name of the new mobile suit, the Gabfly, is a slight distortion of the way you would say Gadfly in Japanese. Yep, Gadofry. And Gadofry had already been used a couple of years earlier in a different mecha series. Oh. Which would explain why they had to distort it a little bit to get something they could actually sell toys of. And it definitely has an insect-like appearance before it transforms into the humanoid shape. It absolutely looks like the biting flies from which the gadfly gets its name. And the term gadfly, when applied to a person, refers to someone who says provocative things in order to get a reaction from the people around them, often as a means of upsetting the status quo. So who in this episode, who in Zeta is a gadfly? Maybe it's Sirocco. It's definitely Sirocco. Maybe it's Camille. It does seem as if Camille has lost ground somewhat. He had developed reasonably positive relationships with the rest of the crew once he became a full pilot, once he sort of learned what was expected of him in his role. And now that he's been away for a while, he's lost it. (laughs) This episode is commonly seen as a big backslide for Camille, but I'm not convinced that it is. Well, it's very difficult to say who's in the right based on what we know as the (laughs) audience, because we see Camille bristle somewhat at being given corrections. He's drifting out too far, you know, this and that, Uh, which like he's still pretty young. (laughs) It's a little cocky of him to be like, how dare anybody (laughs) correct me ever? But maybe they are doing it just to tease him. Maybe they are correcting him just because he's a young guy and he just got back from a big successful mission and they think, you know, he's, he's get full of himself. He's gotten too big for his britches and, <laughs> and needs to be taken down a peg. Well, they are also a couple of young guys, Torres and Sayugusa, who are the two that he fights with on the bridge. They're all around the same age. And they leave the punishment room on not entirely bad terms. Torres and Sayagasa are like trying to get some good hollow tapes out of Camille, which I assume is pornography. They're asking him for that that good Hong Kong pornography. I don't know that this is true. I think even back in the 80s, Hong Kong was famous for bootlegs that you could get all kinds of like bootleg movies and, and other goods. And so him having just been in Hong Kong, they expected him to come back with a bunch of good bootlegs. And Japanese culture wise, it would have been very rude of him to go away and not bring back omiyage or souvenirs for his co-workers. That's true. And the fight on the bridge is not really even that serious. It feels like a couple of friends scrapping. It feels like brothers fighting. And it's classic Camille and also not really reasonable of him to hear someone say like, oh, you must be homesick. And for him to be like, how dare you accuse me of having feelings? I must punch you immediately. (laughs) The only feeling I have is rage. (laughs) Like as insults go, homesick is not much of one. (laughs) Well, and Torres just can't let it drop, right? Camille's starting to leave and Torres needles him. Yeah, and then Camille turns around and tries to sucker punch him. So, you know. Look, I'm not saying <laughs> I'm not saying Camille's in the right. I'm saying nobody is in the right. True. Uh, well, and then Torres and the other guy gang up on him, which is super uncool. True. I was very struck by Bright and Emma's separate reactions. 
Emma's reaction basically being some version of like, boys will be boys. Like Those young people. They just need to get it out of their system, which I'm sure in many military contexts was used to turn a blind eye to a certain amount of roughhousing as long as it was between soldiers of the same rank. So there's no sort of like insubordination issues. Like get it out of your systems as long as you're still fit for fighting. We don't care. And I think it's crucial in this scene that they are all around the same rank. Right. There's no power differential here to make it seem abusive. And Bright doesn't necessarily seem to find fault with Emma's reasoning, with the exception that they are on the bridge. (laughs) They are on duty. This is where serious business is supposed to be happening, and they are roughhousing near all the equipment. And his solution... Like, he punches all of them, but it it felt like a dad walking up to a group of boys, giving each of them a spanking and sending them to their room. Pretty much. (laughs) Like, that is the gentlest punch Camille has gotten in this entire show. And you usually hate when you see Camille punched. I do. In this case, where Bright is breaking up an active fight, and he doesn't even, like, they're in zero gravity. Camille doesn't float away when Camille gets punched. Camille just gets, like, cuffed a little bit in the face. It is very much like a stinging slap, like, hey, cut it out. If Bright had a bottle of water, he would have squirted Camille with a water bottle, but he didn't. And then they're all like, but he started it. And he's like, Go to your room and think about what you've done, (laughs) basically. Yeah, absolutely. Which contributes, I'm drawing a box with my fingers while I say this, (laughs) this scene is a family scene. This is three brothers who get in a fight and mom says, oh, they're just boys. And dad says, yeah, but this is the bridge of our family house. Yeah. (laughs) Go to your rooms and think about what you did. And then mom takes one of the boys aside to say, hey, I know you're feeling sad because you're apart from your girlfriend. And he's like, what girlfriend? No, I'm not. How dare you? (laughs) How do you know about her? (laughs) My immediate response to that discussion with Emma, because Emma says a couple of things to him that I actually think are really good. And normally I hate Emma. Yeah. She has some good advice here. And she says, don't act like you know everything. (laughs) And don't take your feelings out on other people. Both of which are great pieces of advice that no teenager can ever, ever hear and incorporate. (laughs) Like there's no point in telling a teenager that. None whatsoever. Those are things you have to learn (laughs) through hard-won experience. A person can tell you those things, but when you're 17, like forget it. Thinking you know everything and taking out your feelings on other people is like (laughs) all you do. (laughs) I'm glad to hear that you've finally developed some sympathy for Camille. I have sympathy for teens. He's the teenagerest of teens. (laughs) The teeniest. (laughs) He would probably get really angry at you if he heard that. I have a theory of advice, which is that most of the time there's no point in giving it because people can't actually incorporate it. And this is even more true when adults try to give much younger people advice. The Argama as family for Camille dynamic continues both in the punishment room where Torres and Sayugasa behave like Camille's friends or his brothers, demanding the good stuff from him. And we're sorry. And actually, we think you're great. There's clearly no hard feelings over the fight. And Camille says, okay, now you guys are sounding sarcastic now that you're complimenting me. And no, I didn't bring you anything. But he doesn't seem particularly mad either. No. And then when the attack begins and he goes out to launch and he catches up to Emma, he's trying to talk to Emma. Uh, At first he says, Emma-san, Emma-san, 
Miss Emma, mm-hmm. and she ignores him. And then finally he says, Emma Chewy, like Lieutenant Emma. He mm-hmm. uses her proper rank. She's like, oh, hello, Camille. <laughs> I didn't hear you. Funny how you've gotten very serious now that the battle has started. That's just men. Men just only get serious when the battle starts. Did they use the word serious in the translation? Mm. I don't remember what they said exactly. I think like focused. The, the vibe that I got was smart. <laughs> like the only time I can expect you to behave like a reasonable, <laughs> thoughtful person is in a fight. To which Camille responds. But first he carefully turns off his communicator, which got him into trouble earlier in the episode. <laughs> this is a very funny episode. Yes. This is a hysterical episode and we haven't even gotten to the best part yet, but... He remembers to turn off his communicator, and then he says, Ugh, Emma, you're not my sister. Specifically, you're not my older sister. I thought it was interesting that Camille specifically identifies Emma as an older sister type, especially because a lot of what we've seen from him is a mother-seeking kind of behavior, but he doesn't identify it as such. And I think that may be because Camille can't really wrap his head around the idea of a mother figure with whom he is also close. I think it's possible he associates the weird combination of slightly older person constantly trying to give him advice and help him out, but also like weirdly maybe slightly flirty vibe as more like older sistery and less mommy. Oh, that's not better. I know, <laughs> but... Yeah, but further evidence that Camille's relationships with the other people on the Argama have not actually taken a turn for the worse. Everyone's just feeling some tension and blowing off steam. The happiest Camille looks in the whole episode is when he sees that Emma was able to bail out, that her escape pod managed to eject from the Rikdias. Happier than at the very end, even? I think so. I think it's a bigger smile. And he is very smart there. He knows how dangerous it is for her to be in the middle of the battlefield in her escape pod. And she keeps insisting, no, you have to focus on the enemies. You have to come back for me later. But he realizes he can hand the pod off to one of the Nemos, who are far less essential in the fight, and they can take her back. The pilots don't even get names. Camille's like, Nemo number 24, take her back. Yeah. I'm not clear that they actually did anything in that fight either. They briefly interrupt Jared. At a time when he's on the verge of taking down Camille. Okay. There's a real theme of becoming lost in space that runs through this whole episode. While it was a very funny episode in a lot of ways, Camille's cockpit opening sort of unintentionally as a mechanical error and him floating through space in his normal suit is is subtle and quiet, but so frightening. Horrifying. You mostly just hear his breathing, and he's remembering how both of his parents died in space, and thinking about whether he's just going to suffocate while he floats there. It's... And remember that the episode opens with Torres radioing Camille to say, Camille, if you go out any further, you're going to become lost in space. At another point earlier in the fight, the rifle for the Mark II gets knocked away and it goes drifting off into space and then Emma's pod. And then Camille gets rescued by a really fantastic pilot who manages to fend off two gabflays and destroy one of them. And it's (laughs) far. Nina could not handle it. She got so excited when she realized it was far that far was a pilot now. Not just a pilot, a really good pilot who saved Camille. Saved his bacon. I did wonder, 
And I don't think we have enough evidence to actually answer this question yet, but why did Fa become a pilot? I mean, perhaps for the same reason that she was handing out lunchboxes when she first showed up on the Arkema. Where can she be most useful? Exactly. Perhaps even more so than Camille at this point, Fa really sees the injustices of the world and wants to do something about it. The Titans have to be stopped. And as Sirocco says, if she wants the world to change, she has to do something about it. It's clear that she thinks Camille has changed somewhat in the intervening time, because when he points out that like being a pilot has its limitations, that you can't see everything that's going on in the whole battlefield, and it's, that's why it's important to listen to orders, which sounds like something out of a textbook, right? <laughs> like, it's important to listen to orders because you don't know everything that's going on. It sounds to me like something somebody told Camille while they were slapping him. Well, apparently it's stuck. And Fa is impressed with how mature he sounds, that it's not all about him and the fact that he knows exactly what to do at any moment, that he recognizes he, in fact, does not (laughs) always know best what to do. And then they share that embrace at the end in the funniest scene of the episode and also a really touching one. I think we have to break down their reunion a little more because it felt to me like Fa was ready to play it cool just based off of some of the arguments she and Camille had had and the sort of hot, cold interactions. You know, she rolls up and she's standing reasonably far away from him. Oh, he's Sashi Booty. Like, oh, it's, <laughs> it's been a while, huh? And he sort of hides his mouth behind his hand. Which, but you can tell he's starting to smile. He makes off like he's scratching his nose with his finger. It's fairly common in Japan to kind of cover your mouth when you're smiling or talking. Like anytime your mouth is open bigger, uh, it's been considered polite for a long time to kind of cover. And so I think he's just sort of covering the beginnings of a grin. And then he just like goes for it. He just like grabs hold of her <laughs> and they're up against the bulkhead. Well, he says something like... I need to embrace embrace you. you. But he says that a moment after. And Fa is just like frozen before he says anything. Her hand is sort of sticking straight out. She's not actually, (laughs) she's not really hugging Camille. Her hand is just like straight out past him. She looks surprised. I'll grant you she looks shocked. But see, when I watched this, when Camille first goes for it, as you said, (laughs) it looks from the way the camera is positioned. Like they the, kiss. Yeah, it looks yeah. like they're going to kiss. Their mouths come together and then Camille's just goes past Faz. And I really think Faz like, Faz expecting the kiss. Oh. Faz like, is it finally happening? <laughs> what is he doing? Is he, oh, he's, he's hugging me. Okay, we can hug. And then they both lean into it and it's very sweet and they're just hugging. But they're right next to the door to the bridge because that's, <laughs> they had just reported to Bright and told him about everything that had happened and had just left when they had this moment. Bright comes out the door, <laughs> sees them, looks away, keeps walking. <laughs> they both sort of stop and look at Bright <laughs> and then just go back to embracing. And then... A second later, the doors to the elevator at the end of the hall open, and it's Emma. She sees them. Her expression changes. She looks perhaps disappointed, amused. It's hard to tell. But then she closes the elevator doors again. I hadn't thought about it that much, but disappointed might be right. Because remember, she's seen the two of them interact before. She knows what they're like. She clearly thought there was something between them. But she seems very confident that Camille fell in love with somebody while he was on Earth. And now here he is cozying up to Fa when he's still heartsick over somebody back on Earth. Mm -hmm. And so 
there are various reasons why she might find that disappointing behavior, but I, I think that's a good read. And she doesn't try to break it up. She doesn't try to give them any advice, which good on Emma for not doing that in this situation. Her her big sisterly advice would not help, would although, not be welcome. Although she doesn't get off the elevator either. And she clearly needed to. Like she meant <laughs> to get off the elevator at this floor and then decides, on second thought, I guess I'll go around. There's very little privacy on a warship. It's probably a bit like a New York City subway. You just give them the space they need. But they're also in the middle of a hallway. They should be making better decisions. Yes, they're also <laughs> teenagers. Are they going to? No. Ugh, teenagers and their PDA. New York is a very crowded city. Not a lot of space, not a lot of private space, especially for teenagers. And so if you're walking around New York City, if you're in a subway or in a public park at basically any time of day, there will be teenagers hanging out. Canoodling. Because you got no space and no privacy at home. New Yorkers are also just very good at pretending to have privacy out in public. Like if somebody is crying on the train, you might check to make sure they don't need help, but then you would leave them the heck alone and let them cry in peace. I have to imagine Tokyo is very similar. Yeah, probably. So I think that we are meant to begin seeing in this episode some parallels between Camille and Sirocco. The most obvious one, I think, is the last scene of the episode where on Sirocco's ship, he goes to meet Moar as she's leaving the sick bay where Jared is receiving treatment from one of the doctors. And in this scene, he kind of aggressively puts his hands on her shoulders and he has kind of uh, not exactly romantic or flirtatious, but like clearly trying to get her on his side kind of interaction with her. And then in the immediate next scene, Camille goes to meet Fa right as she's leaving the briefing with Bright. The scenes are constructed very similarly. Camille also not aggressive. Well, maybe a little aggressively. It's pretty aggressive. Camille, <laughs> Camille pretty aggressively goes for that hug with Fa. Like he initiates that physical contact. He tries to develop that emotional connection. It's set up pretty similarly. We also know that they're both loners in the same episode where Sirocco is described as living like a hermit or a recluse. Emma makes the point that Camille is feeling very lonely. Even though he's surrounded by all of these people, he still feels alone. Camille, we've noticed, is more interested in developing relationships with women than with men. And a lot of his relationships with men tend to be very contentious. Combative. Literally combative, yes. <laughs> Which seems to kind of be the case for Sirocco as well. Now, at this point, I think the show is just giving us enough to start seeing those parallels, start making those connections, but not yet making any kind of points about either character through it, but it's something to keep an eye on as we go forward throughout the rest of the show. This is an episode very much about setting up the next arc of the show. You know, the last episode really brought to a conclusion the whole Earth arc for Camille. Now we're moving into one that is defined by the Titans, Operation Apollo, and their attempt to take control of Von Braun City on the moon, as well as Camille's conflicts with the other members of the Argama crew, but also his developing relationships with them, the pseudo family he's starting to put together, and Fa now becoming a pilot. What will that mean for her? What will that mean for Camille? The show has asked a lot of questions and put a bunch of cards on the table, but it hasn't yet shown us what those cards are going to look like. A quick note on the title of this week's episode. In Japanese, the episode title is Zeta no Kodo, 
the zeta part is pretty self-explanatory. But the dictionary definition of kodo is a beat, palpitation, pulsation, or throbbing. And the kanji that make up the compound are the kanji for drum, beat, rouse, or muster, and the kanji for movement. Every example sentence I could find used kodo to talk about a person's heartbeat. So the pulse of zeta, perhaps? The beat of zeta? Hmm. As long as we're talking about interesting translation notes, when Bright sends Camille, Torres, and Sayagusa to the discipline room, the punishment room, they don't actually call it the discipline room or the punishment room. The word they use for it is jishu shitsu, which means like private study room. It's a place to go and do your homework alone. Like it's a common thing in Japanese schools or even in some business places. So it's like, go to the self-improvement room. <laughs> go to study hall. Right. It's not like being thrown in the brig. You haven't been charged with anything. That's sort of why in the recap I described it as sending them to cool their heels. Like they're supposed to go calm down and hopefully patch up their relationship. <laughs> and this, I assume, is why they get yelled at for sleeping. They're not in jail. They're not just passing time as a punishment. They are actually supposed to be thinking about what happened and improving themselves. In our research this week, we talk about the gabflay, blood oaths, and some nifty text Easter eggs from the episode. We already talked a little bit about Jared and Moar's new mobile suit, the transforming gabflay, during the talkback. But there's still some more to unpack there, so let's examine this machine. In its mobile suit form, it would fit right in with any of Xeon's designs. Besides being green and brown, it has the same rounded armor plates, the same skirting, and the same mono eye. Like the masala and the gaplant from Zeta, that mono eye is set in a head that is long but narrow. Yet, while the masala and gaplant both feel inspired by birds, the gabflay is undeniably insectoid. All three of these also have small torsos dominated by large limbs, and all three are busy designs, where the basic form of the mobile suit is obscured by, for lack of a better word, a lot of stuff stuck on. In its mobile armor mode, the gabflay's resemblance to an insect becomes undeniable. It's got bulbous eyes, its armor plating looks like an exoskeleton, and its rifle looks exactly like a proboscis. All three of those designs, the Masala, the Gaplant, and the Gabflay, originated with Zeta's main mecha designer, Fujita Kazumi. Only 21 at the time of the show, he also designed the eponymous Zeta Gundam, supposedly after a competition against legendary designers Okawara Kunio and Nagano Mamoru, in which each submitted a design and the studio picked Fujita's. If this story is to be believed, Nagano's design eventually became the Hyakushiki, and Okawara's design became the Psycho Gundam. This is a widely repeated story on the English side of the fandom, but the sources for it are pretty spotty, and when Nagano was interviewed about his work on Zeta, he didn't mention any such contests, so take it with a wandering lake's worth of salt. That proboscis rifle has its own name within the lore. Of course it does. And it's called a Fedayin Rifle. Back in episode 2.11, we talked about the Palestinian Fedayeen, paramilitary commandos who fought on one side of a civil war within the Jordanian capital Amman in September of 1970, and how those events may have partly inspired Zeta Gundam's narrative. 
But the name Fedayeen has been given to numerous, dedicated, ideologically motivated paramilitaries in the Middle East and in fiction. The word is derived from Arabic, and it means, literally, someone who sacrifices themselves for a cause. So why is the rifle called that? Well, there are a couple of possibilities. First, within the story, the gabfle was designed by Sirocco and was intended to be a mass production machine. Perhaps Sirocco wants the soldiers under him to be almost religiously devoted to his cause and willing to sacrifice themselves for it. Or perhaps it's not that deep. The Fedayeen rifle's most notable design feature is its extreme length. It's actually longer than the gabfle itself, so that means it's something like 19 or 20 meters long. And it has a distinctive shape at the butt end. The butt of the rifle connects to the bottom of a pistol-style grip, and there's only a thin rod linking the butt to the barrel. It's also extremely powerful, comparable to the weapons mounted on battleships. Those are all distinctive features. And, in fact, they are the same as the distinctive features on the Jezail, a variety of locally manufactured firearm used in the Middle East, Central Asia, and India from the 1700s on. They were used most famously by Afghan tribal warriors to defeat the British in the First Anglo-Afghan War of 1839-1842. Now, by the 1980s, when Zeta was made, the weapon most closely associated with contemporary Fedayeen fighters was absolutely, undeniably, the iconic AK-47 assault rifle. But the Jezail was also famous and iconic. It stuck around in art and literature, and a handful of the guns stuck around in the real world, too, to be used to some small degree during the Soviet-Afghan War of 1979-1980. While the Jezail was hopelessly outdated by the time the word Fedayeen came into common usage in the mid-20th century, it's not hard to imagine Fujita adapting an iconic historical rifle design from the Arab world's past, and giving the weapon a name taken from the Arab world's present. But what about the name Gabfle? I mentioned the theory, which was originally shared with me in our Discord by our patron Russ, that it comes from the word gadfly, and I buy it. Gadfly transliterated directly into Japanese would sound something like gadofurai, but gadofurai had already been used for a machine in Yasuhiko Yoshikazu's Crusher Joe back in 1983. So if Bandai wanted to sell these as toys, and oh, you can be sure they wanted to sell these as toys, it was going to need a slightly different name. Boo instead of Do, Rei instead of Rai, and there you go. Gabufure. Gabfle. But what is a gadfly? Well, literally, it's another name for a kind of large, biting, blood-drinking fly, more commonly called a horsefly, cowfly, moosefly, or whatever other large animal you got fly. They are loud, aggressive, almost impossible to drive off. They will go after people, and when they bite you, it will hurt for hours if you're lucky or all day if you're not. If you're really unlucky, the bite can get infected, and if you're really, really unlucky, you can get any number of bloodborne diseases from whatever livestock she was drinking before she got to you. And I say she because they only need the blood to nourish their offspring, so only the females bite. The males just drink nectar from flowers. If I sound like I have a personal vendetta against these gadflies, it is because I do. They were endemic around the pool where I swam as a child, so for me, every summer was get-bitten-by-horseflies season. It turns out they were attracted by the bright light reflecting off the water's surface, which is cool. And in my experience, they weren't just awful, they were also spiteful, 
because there could be a hundred other people in the pool. But no matter what you did to drive them away or how long you held your breath underwater waiting for the fly to get bored and go seek other prey, it would always be waiting there for you when you came back up. So anyway, this is a literal fly. But it's also a literary metaphor for an annoying, persistent person. Someone who keeps flitting around, saying provocative things, and asking inconvenient questions. In this sense, it probably derives from The Apology by Socrates, an early Greek philosophical work that is neither an apology nor written by Socrates. It's rather a fictional recounting of Socrates' defense of himself in court on the charge of using philosophy to corrupt the youths of Athens, written by his disciple Plato. In the Apology, Socrates describes himself as a gadfly on the great horse that is the state, an irritating little fly who is nonetheless of great benefit to the state because his pestering bites eventually stir it from repose and into necessary action. The state disagreed with this characterization and ordered his death, which, again, if you've ever been bitten by a gadfly, is understandable. So gadfly became a term for any person who buzzes around asking irritating questions. Socrates and his followers would have you believe that it's really all for the good of those being irritated, but try the Socratic method on your friends at a party sometime and see where it gets you. Then in 1897, Ethel Voynich, a young Irish writer living in London, wrote The Gadfly. She was by this time both a member of a Russian revolutionary movement from her time as a governess in St. Petersburg and in the early stages of a lifelong relationship with a Polish revolutionary. He would later become a rare bookseller, and he would lend the name Voynich to the now-famous Voynich Manuscript. The Gadfly was an internationally successful novel about a young English-born man living in Austrian-dominated Italy during the Risorgimento, the hundred-odd-year-long unification of Italy. The focal character, Arthur, is transformed from an innocent young boy into a ruthless revolutionary under the pseudonym The Gadfly. Arthur originally traveled to Italy in order to become a priest, and themes of religion, the sacred, and revolution intertwine throughout the book. By the end of the book, the young revolutionary, purified by his painful experiences, seems to have become an allegory for Jesus Christ. Most especially when, and remember this bit for later, he forgives the firing squad that is preparing to execute him. The book faded from the public eye in most of the world, but thanks to its focus on the heroism of the revolutionaries and the perfidy of the Catholic Church, it remained hugely popular in the People's Republic of China and the Soviet Union, in the latter where it was made compulsory reading. It was adapted at least three times for Soviet cinema. In 1928, 1955, and this one featured a score by none other than Dmitry Shostakovich, and then finally, in 1980. It's not hard to see parallels between The Gadfly and Zeta Gundam. Besides the overall themes of the novel, there's also the fact that at one point early on, Arthur flees Italy to join the revolutionary struggle in South America, where he is hardened and scarred by his experiences before eventually returning to continue the fight in Italy. Sort of like how Camille went to join the revolutionary struggles on Earth, starting in South America where he was hardened and scarred by his experiences before eventually returning to continue the fight in space. How interesting for him, then, that he encounters the gadfly as soon as he returns. And in Sirocco, we see the intertwining of religion, spirituality, and the revolution. Because Sirocco might be fighting with the Titans, but 
he is no defender of the status quo. Still, besides starting a cult, what exactly is his plan? In this episode, Jamitov Haimem has a flashback to Peptimus Soroko's loyalty oath. It appears to have been part of a massive formal ceremony. Haimem sits on a throne, on a dais, and Soroko stands at a table in the aisle in front of him, with a row of titans in full uniform on either side. The letter specifically gives Haimem the right to kill Soroko if Soroko should ever break his oath. And then Soroko, with a flair for the dramatic, takes out a small knife, presses it to his thumb, and stamps a bloody thumbprint over his signature. Oaths sealed in blood are so much a part of our collective human history that we don't even give them a second thought most of the time. However, I think this was the first time I'd ever seen it come up in a piece of Japanese media, which got me wondering about the uses and history of blood oaths in Japan specifically. Like all the best research, I started with a question. How did blood oaths coexist with Shinto religious practices? Shinto, as a religion, places a lot of emphasis on purity and impurity, and in Shinto, shedding blood is impure. So why would you seal an oath in blood? It's possible that the practice is older than the current Shinto conception of purity. Such things can and do change over time. For instance, current Shinto proscriptions against contact with death were not as strong before the introduction of Buddhism, because once Buddhism arrived, there was some other religious practice that could deal with death. It could also be class-related. Warriors, after all, couldn't be squeamish about a bit of blood. Or it could have closer ties to Buddhism than to Shinto. Thankfully, Japanese Wikipedia came through with some good historical detail, though not necessarily an explicit answer to my question. (laughs) As always, please understand that I am not a fluent Japanese reader and may have misunderstood some parts of the Wikipedia. Questions, comments, and corrections are always welcome at GundamPodcast at gmail.com. The term in Japanese is kepanju. The kepan portion literally means blood seal, as in the sort of seal you use to stamp important documents. The blood embodies or expresses the strength of the oath. The original form of the blood oath comes from the Hongu Taisha Temple in Kumano, Japan. Kumano has been a place of spiritual significance and healing since prehistoric times, so predating religion in Japan. It spans the current Wakayama and Mie prefectures, and there are three main shrines called the Kumano Sanzan, Hongu Taisha, Nachi Taisha, and Hayatama Taisha. People have been making pilgrimages to the region for the last thousand years, but the shrines are even older. In fact, they are mentioned in Japan's founding mythology, and it is said that the first emperor and great-grandson of the sun goddess Amaterasu, Emperor Jimu, came to Kumano to unify the country. Kumano is also sometimes referred to as the land of the dead. Some believe that the spirits of both kami and people's ancestors dwell there. There are now more than 3,000 Kumano shrines spread throughout Japan. I won't dig into the mechanics too much here, but a shrine can receive a kami from another shrine. The kami is propagated, as one source put it, almost like taking a cutting from a plant. And each of the Kumano shrines beyond the main three received theirs in this manner. The written documents began as talismans or charms against evil, issued by the shrine and made to be pasted to the doorway of a home or put into the branches of a nearby tree. It is unclear when they began adding them to written agreements, but at some point they started taking these charms and pasting them to documents. 
If someone broke an agreement that had been sealed with one of these talismans, then the gods of the Kumano temples would seek retribution. Specifically, the mythical raven Yatagarasu would cause the Oathbreaker to die vomiting blood and then fall into hell. Because dying from vomiting blood isn't already hell. Not enough hell. Insufficient hell. The paper itself sometimes also included a drawing or painting of a pattern called either the 88 Yatagarasu or the 88 feathers of Yatagarasu. Unfortunately, the kanji for feather is also used as a counter for birds, so I'm not sure which of those two it is. But it was decorated with a design inspired by Yatagarasu. The Wikipedia page doesn't quite connect the dots from the oaths sealed with the talismans to oaths sealed with actual blood. But we do know that the transition happened over time and that some of the other sources indicate that the blood served a few symbolic purposes. First, that only the blood used to seal the agreement could provide satisfaction if the agreement were broken, which is to say the life of the person who signed was forfeit and sometimes also other members of their bloodline. Second, that it identified the signer to the gods so that they would know where to met out retribution if the agreement were broken. It was proof that the signer was not just putting their life on the line, but also their soul. So historically, when would these oaths be used? Well, blood oaths were frequently used to swear members of a rebellion to secrecy and to indicate their resolve to go through with the rebellion. Mm. If you were afraid your buddies were going to back out at the last minute, you might insist on a blood oath so that everyone has to be 100% committed. There's a whole section in the Japanese Wikipedia page that has something to do with brothels during the Edo era and the relationship between the sex workers there and their clients, but I couldn't make sense of it. <laughs> if anyone else would like to illuminate that for me, uh, we could talk about it in another episode. I would be very grateful because I am deeply curious, but I couldn't quite figure it out. And one of the earliest accounts of these oaths from a foreigner is by Engelbert Kempfer a German explorer, physician, and naturalist who visited Tokugawa, Japan in the late 1600s. His History of Japan was published posthumously in 1727 and was the primary source of information about Japan in the West while the country was closed to foreigners. His experience of the oaths was rather interesting. He cites blood oaths as the reason it was so difficult to befriend or connect with local Japanese people. Any Japanese person who would have contact with foreigners swore a blood oath not to talk with them about the situation in the country, their religion, the government, not to trust them or provide them with any aid, and to report everything they heard and saw, and so on. There was a long list of forbidden topics and other clauses, which varied depending on the position of the person in question, an interpreter, a cook, a scribe, etc. The oaths were renewed frequently, sometimes annually, sometimes more often, depending on the rank of the person in question and how often they dealt with foreigners and the oath required those working with foreigners to monitor and report on each other. You can imagine what a damper that put on any attempt at natural conversation. Kempfer found a way around this, otherwise he wouldn't have been able to write his book, but he does bring up the oath several times. His perception was that even though the oath invokes the prospect of both spiritual and temporal punishment, the oaths were not really enforced by any belief in divine retribution but solely by the fear of punishment by government authorities. He also seems to have thought that they were a highly secular culture, though, and the Japanese people didn't much believe in gods or spirits, which 
I guess might have been true in Tokugawa, Japan. I'm not certain. But it sounds sort of unlikely. An additional detail he mentions is that the signer would use their seal on the document in black ink, then smear a drop of blood on top of it, which is pretty much what Sirocco does, but with a Western-style signature rather than a Japanese name seal. Which now has me wondering, is this why, when you seal important documents, the ink you use is red? For instance, the seals put on works of calligraphy are red. In a more contemporary context, blood oaths have long been used in schools where knowledge is kept secret, such as martial arts lineages. And students in some martial arts lineages still swear blood oaths today. You can only belong to one school, and when you join, you swear an oath or make a pledge to the master of the school to train hard, to follow their rules, their regulations, their codes, and to keep all of the school's secrets. I lost the source for this, but I think I read something about a famous Japanese mathematician who also required his disciples to swear an oath of secrecy <laughs> about his mathematical methods. Publish and perish. Finally, I want to talk about an incident that may be the closest inspiration for Sirocco. In Japanese, it's called Ketsume Dan Jiken. In English, it's called the League of Blood Incident or the Blood Pledge Corps Incident. In 1932, a group of civilian ultranationalists formed a plot to assassinate 20 liberal politicians and prominent businessmen. The leader of the group, born Shiro Inoue, spent his early adulthood in intelligence in the Japanese military, mostly in northeastern China. He had what he described as some spiritual experiences that led him to believe Japan was in need of spiritual rebirth and that he was called to be its savior. He returned to Japan, founded a school that became a training center for far-right radicals, changed his name to Nisho Inoue, Nisho meaning called by the sun, and inflected his teaching with ideas and symbols from Nichiren Buddhism. There was a failed coup d'etat attempt in 1931 by far-right army officers belonging to a nationalist secret society. This was called the October Incident. I have to quote the Wikipedia here because I love how this next bit is phrased. Inoue became convinced that national reform could be achieved only through violent confrontation with what he saw as the forces of evil pro-Western, liberal politicians, and zaibatsu business interests. He devised the slogan, Ichinin Isatsu, One Person, One Kill, and drew up a list of 20 politicians and business leaders whose assassination would be the first step toward restoring supreme political power to the emperor. Ultimately, only two of the planned 20 were assassinated, former finance minister and head of one of the liberal political parties, Junosuke Inoue, and the director general of the Mitsui Holding Company, Dan Takuma. The conspirators were caught and tried. However, the incident had long-lasting ramifications in Japanese society and in the Japanese legal system. Nisho used the trial as a platform for disseminating his far-right and ultranationalist radical viewpoints, views with which a lot of the Japanese public was sympathetic, even if they didn't agree with Nisho's methods. A Zen Buddhist leader even testified on Nisho's behalf. Police treated the two assassins as respected patriots, and it set legal and social precedents that made it difficult for the court to deal harshly with terrorists if those terrorists claimed that they were acting in the best interests of the emperor. It is considered a contributor to the deterioration of rule of law in 1930s Japan. You may have noticed I never mentioned an oath. Well, League of Blood is a misnomer. 
Some of the conspirators, not all of them, took a loyalty oath, but there is no evidence that it was a true blood oath. The term appeared in the popular press, I'm sure the drama of it helped sell papers, and was used in the trial and so has endured in historical accounts. The position of this event in the relatively recent history of Japan may have created a strong association between blood oaths and secrecy, rebellion, and far-right and nationalist terrorism, associations that may have contributed to the decision to write this blood oath into a Titans storyline. Do you ever pause to look at the little bits of text that crop up in the backgrounds, on screens, and so on? You should. They're written in Latin script with Arabic numerals, and they are full of sneaky inside jokes by the production staff. To an outsider, 35 years later and with the language barrier, most of them are incomprehensible. But then you will get moments, like in episode 5 when schematics for the Rictias flash momentarily on screen, and show that it includes a component named for star of Japanese cinema and giant lizard monster, Godzilla. Or in episode 8, where Jared's cockpit screen shows that the Titans are using, of all things, nautical miles to measure distance in space. Atari gets name-dropped at one point, as do the names of prominent staff members. And there's even one bit on a view screen aboard the Argama in episode 11, with a full sentence written out in Romaji, those are Japanese words written using Latin characters, and the sentence is, is this director Tomino's stupid idion? A reference, of course, to Tomino's previous project, Space Runaway Idion, which someone didn't like very much. Or they were tired of hearing Tomino talk about it. Or maybe they were an overworked artist and they weren't actually certain which project they were working on. But anyway... In this week's episode, there is a bit of text written on the front of the cargo shuttle Fa uses to ruin Jared's day and save Camille's. You can see it once Camille is sitting on Fa's lap in the cockpit, and it reads ST-MIKI space Y-A-S-A-S-I. That last word, Yasasi, is a bit of a puzzle. It looks like Japanese, but there's no C sound in Japanese, so... Either it's missing some letters, and it's meant to be yasashi, meaning kind, gentle, or easy, or there's something else going on that I can't figure out. But leaving that aside, the former part, st-miki. I'm convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that that is a reference to the Roman Catholic Saint Miki, most famous of the 26 martyrs of Japan, who was executed by crucifixion in 1597 near the end of the Warring States period and at the beginning of the centuries-long persecution of Christians in Japan. Saint Miki, whose Christian-given name is variously Paul, Paolo, or Pablo, was born into the upper class in 1562, 13 years after the arrival of Portuguese Jesuit priests in Japan, and during a period of tremendous success for those early missionaries. As I mentioned earlier, these were the last years of the Warring States period, and times of civil war often spark new religious feelings among common folk who are looking for some sense in the chaos of their world. For the warlords at the top of the heap, converting to Christianity meant easier access to European trade, and that meant easier access to European guns. For the people at the very top, the military dictators trying to unify the country and the imperial court that was still nominally in charge, 
Christianity looked like a convenient way to weaken the political power of the last foreign religion to set up shop in Japan, Buddhism. But that happy situation for the missionaries did not last, as first Oda Nobunaga and then Toyotomi Hideyoshi came close to unifying the country, they began to view the rapidly growing population of Christians, with their powerful converts and their ties to foreign empires, as a potential threat to Japanese autonomy. At the same time, following political changes back in Europe, Spanish Franciscan priests joined their Portuguese colleagues-slash-rivals in Japan. Eager to make up for lost time, the newly arrived Spaniards went to work converting as many people as possible while ignoring the tense political climate and the warnings from their more experienced Jesuit colleagues. It went poorly. But the last straw was what is now called the San Felipe Incident. There's a long story here, but the short version is that a Spanish ship called the San Felipe ran aground in Japan. The cargo was seized by the local lord. And as part of a ploy to get the cargo back, the captain of the ship tried to wine and dine an influential courtier. Then someone, the Portuguese say it was the Spanish, and the Spanish say it was the Portuguese, suggested to this courtier that the mass Christian conversion project going on in Japan right at that moment was in fact step one in the two-step plan that Spain used whenever it was trying to conquer and colonize some new country. This, it turned out, was exactly what Hideyoshi was afraid of, and what all of his Buddhist advisors had been telling him that the Spanish were trying to do. So he came down hard. And among other reprisals, Hideyoshi ordered the Franciscans and their disciples rounded up and executed. In all, six Franciscan missionaries, 17 of their Japanese initiates, and three Jesuits who were included by mistake, were arrested and marched to Nagasaki, where they were hung from crosses and stabbed with spears. Saint Miki, who at the time was in training to become a priest, was one of the three Jesuits, and he has since emerged as the most prominent from this group of martyrs, thanks to the fashion in which he spent his last hours. He is said to have preached a sermon from the cross, and, like Christ and the gadfly, to have forgiven his executioners. But what the heck is he doing in Zeta Gundam? I don't know. But I don't think you can deny that he's there, on the front of Fa's ship. Next time on episode 2.23, Harsh Realities, we cover Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam, episode 22, and... Sirocco must be the only person to ever think of Jared as lucky. More new machines? What is this, the middle of the show? His body is here, but his soul is trapped by Earth's gravity. Fa pulls a Camille. And yet, not a single close-up of his eyes. Jared is just the worst babysitter, like a horse looking after two dogs. The Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam. Hey, that's the name of the show. Teen Titans, go! So many romantic subplots, there's barely room for the main plot. And we are here to ruin ourselves and to break our hearts and to love the wrong people and die. You will see the tears of time.
Remember to do all of the podcast things. Subscribe and review Mobile Suit Breakdown wherever you get your podcasts. Then pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown on Patreon, where you can find great bonus content, get access to the MSB Discord, get exclusive MSB merchandise, and, you know, support the podcast. You can also follow at Gundam Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, and like us at facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast for all kinds of extra content. And you should always check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for all of our episodes, show notes, watch list, wish list, some other lists, and more. Plus, you can always email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or just shout your wrong Gundam opinions to us in person by coming to scenic New York City and yelling, Sroko is a nice guy. He just wants to be friends. On any busy street corner, we'll totally hear you. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin, and the closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. Shiroko. He's getting that criticism from Torres. He's like, oh, when I get back to the ship, Torres is toast. And he actually says toast, tosto. <laughs> Which was wild for me. I was like, wait, did he just say toast? He did. I was going to make a joke earlier after I told you that that was a good read and you were like, thank you. I was going to do an aside. I have to give him some compliments every episode just to keep his spirits up. (laughs) Oh no. I made made a little claw motion there. That felt like a good ending. I don't need to talk about their smooches. (laughs) Their their hugs. (laughs) Reference to previous season of the show. The most hardcore name. Yeah, I would watch that anime. Except you wouldn't, though. Wait until I tell you what happened. Hmm. Hmm. Seeing you in that tank top, I can't help but wonder, are you a member of AUG? Death to sleeves. (laughs) Free the shoulder. Your guns can't be trapped by Earth's gravity. Wow. <laughs> People who blare their music, another enemy to podcast. It's a good movie, okay? Maybe Fa is the genius who will lead the world after the war. <laughs> with Soroko at her side. You want to say anything else before I stop it? Nope.